Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Now, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us to enlighten our minds, that your angels will join us as we rejoice in you. We also want to remember the families of, that have lost loved ones recently, Lord. We think of uh, Russell and his family, the Atkins family. We think of the Knoppers. We also think of Bonnie Hunt and the loss of her son recently. There are many, many in our, our, our family here that are hurting. And we ask that your spirit will be with them to comfort them and help them to see past the pain to the, to the day that you return in the clouds and all our loved ones are raised, that we can be with them again. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, Loved and Loving, John's Epistles. And the title for the lesson this week is Confidence. And if someone would read the memory text for us there, which is 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence which we have in him, that if we ask anything, will, he If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5, 14. And when you hear that text, what do you think it means, he hears us? How do you hear that Bible passage. When you read that promise, we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How, how do you hear the promise? That he's aware of our prayer? That it registers in God's consciousness, otherwise it doesn't even register? Gives us On the front it suggested that when we ask anything according to his will, he gives us what we ask. Hears us means... What do you all think? You like, you like that idea? Hears us according to his will that he gives us. Does it mean that he cares if we, and he doesn't care if it's not according to his will? He cares all the time. Does it mean that he doesn't hear us if it's not according to his will? Well, that, did you hear that? Does it mean he doesn't hear us if we pray not according to his will, that he doesn't hear? Are there evidences in Scripture where the children of Israel prayed not according to God's will and he still granted their prayer? Yes. Yes. The quail. There's an example. He wanted. He was feeding the manna. His will was very clear by what he was doing. He was giving them manna every day, and they begged for meat, and he sent them quail. He gave King Saul. There's another good example. So they were not praying according to his will, yet he heard them, didn't he? So what does it mean then? He answers according to what is for our best. Does it mean that when we ask in accordance with his will, we are demonstrating our hearts are in harmony with his, and thus our prayers in that frame hit a corresponding note in God's heart? And isn't that his will in the first place, that our hearts be harmony? Yeah. And so it's talking about a, a synergy, a, a harmony, a unity that God is bringing us to, that, when, that, that, that is really the focus here is, is that bringing our hearts back into harmony with his will. Yes? Because we say those words, does it really mean that it's true? Well, it doesn't say, if you say, I pray according to his will, it says when we actually pray or ask in according to his will. So it would be the heart, the, the heart really is wanting his will to be done. As Christ in the Gethsemane, Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Was that just words, or does Christ's heart really mean that? I meant from our standpoint. Yeah, from our standpoint, it's not just saying the words. It has to have the heart really meaning it. I believe that. I yeah. I'm wondering if we really 
Yeah. yeah. When we say the words, are we really believing what we are asking in, according to his will, do we really mean that? She's raising a great question. Does prayer become so formalized that we become so habituated in saying certain things? Uh, according to your will, we pray in Jesus' name. And it becomes just a little tag phrase we put at the end of the Christmas list that we've just given God. But what if you're praying for something that you know, um, maybe you don't know, maybe you think it's all, it's, it's, it's good. Right. You're praying for something that you're not sure really is His will, but you really want it? No, no. I'm not saying it's right. Oh, come on. Haven't we all prayed that prayer? <laughs> I'm going to give a situation, okay? A situation where um, when our son went to plow, we prayed. And I would think that that would have been a wonderful thing that God would want him to do. Things didn't go well. And to this day, I regret that that prayer was answered that way, that he did go. But I would have thought that it would have been the exact thing that God would have wanted. And I prayed earnestly and did everything in my power, in my power, I'm saying this, because I did as a mother. It didn't work out well. And I wish it had never happened. But there's no way in the world I would have thought that that would have turned out that way, that it would not have been God's will. That's a beautiful segue right into the next part of the lesson. So let's read the next prayer, and we're going to keep pick, seek that train of thought. Um, somebody read for us the, uh, the three paragraph, four paragraphs there, starting Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin once said that only two things are certain in this life, death and taxes. There's a third certain thing as well. Life is full of uncertainty. We do not know how secure our jobs are. Nothing guarantees our protection from sickness, terrorism, war, and natural disaster. We have no guarantee that when we go to bed, we will wake up the next day. Facing this, we do our best, trying to protect ourselves from these troubles the best we can, and yet in the end, our best efforts can guarantee us nothing. But what about God and God's promises? Are they not certain? How can we live without confidence and assurance when it comes to God? Our relationship with God and living with Him forever are more important than anything else. What does John have to say to us about this? The most important thing in our... You, you think this is uh, touching on some of your concerns? This uncertainty. How can we have confidence and certainty? And so I was reading this. Um, how do you deal with uncertainty? Do you have uncertainty in your life? Yeah. Yeah. How do we deal with that? Can Christians have certainty about anything? What can we have certainty about? Eternal life. What else? God's love. God's love. Okay, we have certainty about God, His existence, about His character, about His will. Can we have certainty about His will for our long-term good? Yes. Yes. What else? Peace in the middle of the storm. So we can have certainty that God can bring peace to our hearts in the middle of crisis around us. And then He can work it all out for All things work together for good for them that love the Lord. And notice it doesn't say all things are good. That's the hard thing for us to remember as humans is in His time and our time. Therefore, we may never see the end results in our day. Hmm. But can we still have certainty it's all going to work together for good? It's hard. <laughs> so, so, what about um, when we make choices in life? Like, are you ever worried that you make the choice to go to the wrong school or major in the wrong career? 
or choose the wrong person to date or choose to go to the wrong church or accept the wrong job or move to the wrong city. Uh, am I hitting on any, any concerns that people have ever had? Yeah. What happens if we make, our cho- make choices that turn out after we make them to not be the best, like going to Palau? Well, we just blame God. <laughs> it was his fault, wasn't it? He should have closed that door. What was he thinking? Well, I think that possibly a bad experience can make you appreciate your freedom in another country and and things that when you get back to your regular lifestyle, that will open your eyes to um, more confidence than what you left. So you're, you're saying that every choice we make, if we have an open heart and mind, is a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Yes. Hmm. So I have patients who fear making mistakes. I don't know if you all would believe that or not, but um, I do. And they fear all kinds of mistakes. Do you fear making mistakes? Why? Why should you fear making a mistake? Are mistakes sin? And I heard some yeses. I heard some noes. Can you make a mistake that are make mistakes that are not sinful? Yeah, do you do you feel guilty if you make a mistake? I hear yeses. I hear maybes. I hear sometimes. Hmm. Will we make mistakes in heaven after all's made new? Hmm. Interesting. We know we won't sin in heaven, right? But we've already said that we can make mistakes that aren't sin. So can we make mistakes? Will we make mistakes in heaven? Oh, really? Hmm. Let's talk this through. In Patriarchs and Prophets, it's interesting, it describes when Eve wandered from Adam's side. It wasn't sin that she ate that fruit, but it was a mistake to wander from Adam's side. It was a mistake to talk to the serpent. And those both mistakes took place in perfection before sin took place. That's an interesting one. I'm thinking even something much more innocent than that. Could you tell me what the stake is? Yeah, we're about to do that. Um, yes. Will there be mental challenges for us in heaven? Do you think you will have the privilege of exploring any field of study your heart desires in heaven? Yes. And could you imagine if Albert Einstein is in heaven, that he would be studying maybe the, the origins of how God created the universe. you think he would be interested in those things? And could you see Albert Einstein studying the, the fabric of the cosmos and working out some intricate uh, mathematical equation, and Jesus is there talking with him, and uh, do you think Albert Ein- that Jesus will just come up and hand him all the answers? Or do you think that Jesus will let Albert Einstein struggle with some of those problems and maybe make a mistake on his equation? Or Albert Einstein will get every equation correct and won't be any any problems to to process through. What's the fun in that? Yeah, that was important. You can't learn without making mistakes. You can't learn without making mistakes. As teachers in the room, um, if you have a student that you're studying, uh, maybe you're teaching algebra, and the student is struggling with a problem and working out an equation, do you just walk up and say, 27, 34, 72? Do you just give the answers? 
And if you just give every answer, is there any growth in the mind of the student? Or does the student need to struggle with the problem? Processing through and coming to some wrong conclusions and then pointing them in the direction, giving them guidance, but helping them come to see the answer for themselves. Is that, is that different than just giving them the answer? Are those types of mistakes in? No. No. Will there be that type of mental processing and learning and understanding going on in heaven? Yes. As a teacher, I'm hoping that the learning process in heaven will be much more perfect than the learning process here on earth. I think much. I think we need to be careful as we do this analogy. I think we, our learning processes will be will be very different. Even though I agree with what you're saying, I think the learning process will be very. Different. We will be so much more efficient, no question. But let's talk about that gap. God is infinite. And even in our perfected state, we won't be infinite, will we? So how big is the gap between God and the perfected beings of his creation? An infinite gap. So even in that perfected state, there's going to be so much to challenge our understanding, to expand our, our uh, and questions for us to explore, yeah? Yeah, and don't you think there... I mean, all of us who love studying and love learning, isn't there a joy in discovery? Yes. Yeah. How about if you uh, maybe have your own mansion in heaven? Do you think God will dictate to you with a prescribed list of details what plants you must put outside your, your mansion? If you decide you want to put a, a, a plant, uh, I don't know, a juniper tree near your home, might you discover that, hey, you planted it closer than you really wanted after a few hundred years? Is that, is those types of mistakes, could that happen? Is that a sin? You see, while we will be sinless, we won't be um, omniscient. Will we? And since we uh, won't be omniscient, won't we then have the, the innocent foibles of a child uh, that doesn't know the end from the beginning without any rebellion, without any sin, without any selfishness, and a perfect loving heart still discovering things? Just like Adam and Eve. Yeah. They, they were required to learn. They were required to, to develop. And so, so when we bring this back to our circumstance here on earth, can we make mistakes here in our human nature that are not sinful? I'm sure that when Christ was little as a boy and learning to do the carpenter work, he made many mistakes until he learned to do it right. And yet he never sinned. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, so, if we accept the fact we're finite, and on earth right now we're also sinful, do we expect that we will go through this life without making mistakes? No. We only expect others to. <laughs> we only expect others to. Oh, did you hear that? Wow, what a profound statement. Isn't there some truth in that? Yes. yes, and think about how we treat others because we have this expectation. But I actually have a lot of patients who have this perfectionistic expectation of themselves. They have a really high standard. They can't tolerate imperfection in themselves, and they, and they get burdened down with guilt of an inappropriate kind if they make not sinful mistakes, but innocent human mistakes. Because what do they end up doing? Well, let's talk about this as a parent. Any parents ever struggle with a child who has left the reservation? You know, gone wayward as an adult? And then felt guilty as a parent? Are you responsible for the outcome of your children's lives? No. I hear yes and I hear no. 
Hmm. Let me let me see if I can phrase this and give it make it a little more clear. Are parents responsible for how their children turn out, or are parents responsible for their conduct in parenting? Aren't those two different things? Not necessarily. How about when God parented Lucifer? Was God responsible for how Lucifer turned out? Probably based on presupposition, his parenting was correct. His parenting was incorrect, and he would share responsibility for the outcome. Was God? Follow the logic of that. Yes, I did. His parenting was incorrect, and he would have, since we're not God. We do have some incorrect parenting. We do in part share outcomes. Well, let's talk that through. yeah, I, I hear what he's saying. He's suggesting, for instance, a parent who abuses their child. They're responsible for their partial outcome. No, they're responsible for their abuse of their child. But I have many patients who were abused as kids who's, who don't turn out to be abusers and turn out to be very righteous and, and Christ-like people because they've made choices not to let the abuse turn them into an evil person. Well, so Nero's mother, who helped to shape his character shared in the outcome moral responsibility for what he became. I think it would be inconsistent to say that it wasn't the case. No, we, parents are responsible for their conduct in parenting, which has influence on outcomes, but doesn't determine outcomes. Well, not necessarily. What do you all think? Do you think that any of you can actually determine the outcome of anything other than your own eternal destiny? Because God's universe runs so consistently, because God has created the laws of this universe to run so predictably, we actually get the illusion that we can control how things turn out. If you read, read the history of, uh, of President Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson, uh, uh, at one of the functions he was at, a man came up to him, uh, pulled out a pistol three feet away, pointed it at him, pulled the trigger, it misfired. He reached in with his other hand, pulled out a second pistol, three feet away, pointed at him, and it misfired. Now that man, with two pistols, was sure he could control what was going to happen to Andrew Jackson that day. He couldn't control the outcome. He could control his actions of going there with pistols to fire, and, but, but they didn't fire. How many stories have we heard? Because the universe is so predictable, we think that we can control how things turn out. We can only control what God has given us governance of. And what has God given us governance of? Ourselves. Ourselves. And and with that control, we can influence events. But our influence can be overruled by a higher power, can't it? We can't guarantee outcomes, can we? And that's what I'm talking about, guaranteeing outcomes. And this is critically important because I have many patients who struggle with guilt because of not sinful mistakes like the parent who uh, puts whiskey in their child's bottle. And I have patients who come to see me whose parents, to keep them sedate, to keep the kids from crying at night, would put whiskey in the, in the infant's bottle and give them whiskey. Okay, this, this is obviously not a healthy thing. We're not talking about that type of, of mistreatment. We're talking about the innocent mistakes without any intent to do harm that we still make, and parents feel guilty about this. With parents who are willing to do the best they know how at every turn for their child, their heart motive is always in the right place, but they still make mistakes. They feel guilty when the child goes away. Well, this is, uh, this is some of the... I think grandiosity that we think that we have that we can control outcomes because there are so many influences on the outcome of every one of our lives besides parental. Parental influence is huge, 
But how about if parents are doing a good job and in first grade, uh, unbeknownst to the parent, uh, a first grade teacher molests your kid? Do you think that could affect outcomes? How about in second grade, they see their best friend on the playground run out to get a ball and get hit by a car and killed? Do you think that could affect this child? I mean, there's so many influences that influence us besides parental that we need to be honest with ourselves about what our responsibilities are to be the best parents as God enables us to be and actually best human beings that God enables us to be at every turn but not taking on ourselves responsibility for the outcome, especially of other people's lives. Does that make sense? So we don't need to be afraid of making wrong decisions uh, in the sense of an innocent type of a decision. Where should I go to school? Should I take this class? Should I major in this field? Should I take this job? We need to be afraid of not learning, of not being open to new information, to change our, our decision-making process as new data comes. And I have patients all the time, I say, if you're not sure what major to take, pick one. As soon as you get into it, you're going to get more information you currently don't have that's going to either verify this is the right field for you, or it's going to quickly, you're going to figure out it's the wrong field for you, and you can go down another path. It's better than sitting there in limbo and not making any decision, which is also a decision. All right, Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, according to Hebrews 4.16 and 10.19, Christians can draw near to the throne of God with confidence. Why? First, because Jesus shed his blood for them on the cross. And second, because Jesus has ascended to heaven and serves as the high priest on their behalf. Why does this give you confidence? How does this give you confidence? What would have prevented your confidence if Christ had not done these things? I mean, we say it all the time. I was at a sermon, really cool speaker, I like him a lot. He did this really neat little enactment where he brought a little um, stuffed lamb out and took a knife out and, and, and enacted the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, metaphorically describing the shed blood of Christ. And he talked about how the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the church was, amen, amen. And afterwards I went up and said, can you tell me what that means? And he couldn't. Are we talking the physical red blood of Jesus? Is that what we're talking about? No. You know the song, there's power in the blood? Is there? No. What does it mean? It's a, it's a metaphor. What's it telling us? The life of Jesus. The life is in the blood, it says in Leviticus. So we're talking the life of Jesus somehow cleanses us. Well, how's that? Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. You have no part with me. So what is he, what is, where is he saying that this is supposed to be applied? Your word of heart. Into in, in us. We're to partake of him. Pardon? In the word of God. In the, in the word of God. Yes, so we can partake of him by partaking of the word. Because it's the living and written word. Yeah. And we can do that. And then we internalize that into our hearts. Come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, red like crimson, they're made like wool. Notice the connection God has put there between reasoning with God and cleansing from sin. Why is that the case? Satan is the father of? Truth will set you free. Right? John 8.32. Somehow our minds have been corrupted by lies told by the father of lies. Reasoning with God, who is the source of all truth, the word, we partake of that. It transforms, it opens the heart to his working powers. We're restored to trust. Hmm. Third paragraph, same 
things. As the same term is used by, in, by John in 1 John 4.17, talking about confidence or boldness in the day of judgment. Christians are not afraid of judgment. They rely on what Jesus has done for them. Their confidence is not in themselves or what they have done or could ever do. This confidence rests instead entirely in Jesus. Thoughts about that? How have you heard this described in the judgment? Why is our confidence in the judgment in Jesus? He's our attorney. He paid the penalty. He pleads for us. Other thoughts? He's standing between us and God. He's standing between us and God. You ever heard that one? When the Father looks to us at the judgment, He doesn't see us. He sees His Son. Are there examples in Bible, metaphorically acted out, that, that would give us examples of this? In the Bible, what was leprosy a symbol of? Sin. And if somebody had leprosy, where did they have to stay? In the camp or out of the camp? Because it separates. Okay. Now, when Jesus healed the leper, he instructed him to do something. What did he instruct him to do? Go show yourself to the high priest for what purpose? What was the high priest going to do? Was he going to make a judgment? Was he going to examine him and make a judgment, clean or unclean? Was he? This is a metaphor. Act it out. Sin, leprosy represents sin. He's going before the high priest who represents? And he's going to be judged. Clean or unclean? Now, think this through, this metaphor through. Did the leper rely on all that Jesus had done for him in that judgment? Or was he relying on his own work and his own effort? When the leper went to the high priest, who was he relying upon? All that Jesus had done for him. When the high priest went to examine the leper, did Jesus suddenly step in between him and the high priest and say, examine me in his place? No. Interesting. Hmm. What did Jesus do for that leper? Healed him. He healed him. Who gets examined in the judgment? Yes, and what is the whole teaching of the New Testament? I will write my law in your heart and mind. You, you will have the mind of Christ. The heart will be circumcised with the Holy Spirit. We will be regenerated. Create me a new heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, all the metaphors are about God's plan to actually transform, regenerate, recreate, and restore you back into godliness. So that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. Why? Because we're like him. It's not some little mystical thing of, of you know, deception where, where at the last moment Christ slips into the judgment chamber right before us. It's, we, are, we are Christ-like in heart because he heals us to look like him. Do you think when the leper, who had been healed, headed towards the high priest for that examination, that he went with confidence? Yes. Why? Do you think you'll have confidence in the judgment? Why? He had evidence that he was healed. And will we? Yes. Yes. When is it you, by the way, when do you think you stand in that judgment? See, what causes so much insecurity in our church is it's commonly taught that you're standing there now. And then you look around yourself and you're saying, wow, I, I had this problem today. I messed up. I didn't do right. And it 
creates terrible insecurity because it's like the leper going with, with still leprous lesions. But what's the day we actually stand before the great white throne? Is that today? Who's being judged now? God. Who's being investigated now? What's the third angel's message? The first? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you win your case. May you prove right. May you be the one to be shown right when you are on trial. So the whole investigative judgment is about God being judged. When we're told that now that the, that the righteous are being judged, the righteous are being judged, it's not. It's God being judged all this time. Investigative judgment is God being judged. True or false? As you judge God as either someone you can trust or someone you can't trust. Does that determine what happens to you? So, as we judge God, are we also passing judgment on ourselves? So it's not inseparable. But we've had this backwards. We have this idea that our eternal destiny is... God sitting up on a throne, going through a set of record books, weighing the pros and the cons, and ultimately looking for that magic stamp of the blood of Christ on the books. Rather than, rather than the process of the truth setting his children free and winning us back to trust, and once we're won back to trust, it says in Romans 5.5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. He writes his law on the hearts and minds. He restores his character within us. And then when he looks at us, he sees Christ because we're Christ-like within. But that can only happen if we first rid ourselves of the lies that keep us from knowing him. This is spiritual warfare. Why does it talk about the judgment books? Why does it say in the books will be open? What is that? I've said this story before, and there's a lot of new people, so I'll say it again. When I was fourth year of medical school, I was uh, working at an emergency room at Erlanger Hospital, and there was a helicopter crash out at Level Field, and they brought all the victims of the crash to our um, hospital. And there was one lady who had fractured femurs, the big bones in the leg, and pelvis. Uh, and she was bleeding from those bones into the tissues, the muscles and stuff. And it's called internal hemorrhage. And if, uh, if something wasn't done, she was going to die from these injuries. She wasn't dead yet, though, when she came in. She happened to be Jehovah's Witness, and she needed blood transfusions, and she needed surgery. She refused those blood transfusions. And so we began to plead with her. The medical students, which I, I was one, uh, pled with her. The nurses, the doctors, the emergency doctors, the hospital chaplains came down. They actually had the hospital administrator and the hospital lawyer came down and talked with this lady. And, and, and the constantly somebody's in there trying to reason with her, explain to her situation, making sure she understood the pros and consequences, the potential risks, what could happen to her. I mean, for the entire time, and we were doing everything else we could. We were using, she would accept her own blood. So we were using the, the, uh, the blood savers that would re reinfuse her blood that we could send back into her. We were using pneumatic devices to put pressure on to stop the, stop the weed. Everything with volume expanders, with liquid, everything we could do, we were doing to try to save her. But she refused the blood transfusions. And someone was interceding with her. Until she lost consciousness. Once she lost consciousness, no one pled with her anymore. And sadly, of that helicopter crash, she was the only one who died. Everyone else lived. Now, 
I can promise you why this was going on. There was one nurse assigned to copiously write down everything. Documenting every word, every person, time, state, who did this, what she said, response. I mean, it was just copiously documented. Everybody working in the healthcare field know that, right? Yeah. Now, when her family, after she is the only one who dies, brings a suit against the hospital, he, you are unfair, you're prejudiced, you're biased, you save some to pick and save, others you won't save. And they file that lawsuit and it goes to court. What comes into evidence? The medical records are into evidence. For what purpose? To condemn this woman or to exonerate the health care team? You see, these are the purpose of the records. It says in 1 Corinthians about love, because we know God is love, yes? 1 Corinthians 13 describes this love, and it says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. But yet there are records. But it's not the records that we've been taught that he's up there keeping a list of everything to punish us by. God doesn't do that. These records are kept to show that all those who are lost are lost only because of their persistent and insistent refusal to allow God to save them. And God will be proved righteous even though many are lost. Monday's lesson. Boy, we've got several interesting things we need to go over Monday's lesson. Um, Let's skip to the bottom and read the green section, please. Look at yourself closely. We know it. It's painful. Are you struggling with assurance of salvation? If so, isn't it because of the things that you are doing? If so, then you must first claim the forgiveness that is yours and then claim the power to overcome that is promised you. What's holding you back but your own choices? Did everybody hear that? As you read that, what emotion does it generate in your heart? Oh, come on. Guilt, thank you. Isn't, don't you feel blamed? Don't you feel accused in reading this? It's your fault. You know if you don't have insurance, it's because there's some problem in you. You are making bad choices. You are holding to sin. You're doing something wrong. Now, let's be clear. That is one possibility. It is true. We, can, we all know that's a possibility. So we are going to just accept that. That yes, people can choose to reject God, can hold the evil in their lives, and they won't have assurance if that's happening. That's the truth. But is that the only reason why people don't have assurance? How about if somebody has been taught a picture of God who is severe and arbitrary and dictatorial? And he's sending, like when I was, uh, when I was a child, a children's story one Sabbath morning, church time, went up front and they had somebody in a white robe with a little gold halo come out with a gold clipboard and gold pen. And this story unfolded. This was the recording angel following the children around to write down every little mistake they make so that one day they will have to face it in the judgment and be punished. I hated that story. It took away peace for many years. You see... I didn't lose assurance or peace because of some mistake I was making. I I lost assurance of peace because of some lie about God that somebody told me. And people can have loss of confidence or assurance because they have been lied to about the kind of being God is. Listen to this out of the book Great Controversy, page 536. It is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. 
When we consider in the false colors Satan, in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful Creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God which have spread over the world from the teachings of the pulpit have made thousands, yes, millions of skeptics and infidels. Is this, do you think she's describing people who have lost confidence? And is she describing this because of some bad thing they're doing? No, they've been lied to about God. And I'm going to suggest to you, this is more important reason than some issue of a behavior that we're struggling with. Because if we don't come to the truth about God, we have no power to overcome the behaviors in our lives. But how does that justify what you're just saying about if somebody's being interceded with, but yet if you've already developed the construct of God from an early age, I have a lot of friends that don't want to even talk about it. I have a lot of friends that want to talk about it in, in the light of somebody like Richard Dawkins. I mean, they, they just don't want to believe that God is anything more than what he has ever been told to them. And you go and you talk with them, and you intercede with them, and you know, you read these you read these these quotes, many will be lost, hoping and desire to be Christians, and what do you do with that? I have many actual patients that see me who have come to me in a similar vain. They've been raised in various Christian denominations, wide range of denominations, and they've been presented a God that was um, very much similar to the one described here. And somewhere in their thinking, they didn't surrender their judgment. They didn't surrender their individuality. They didn't turn off their brain at the door and check it at the, at, as they entered the pew. Um, and so they rejected this whole thing and walked away. And so I, well, my style of approaching it is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And I let them describe him as full as they can. And I've always so far been able to say, good for you, I don't believe in him either. <laughs> good for you. A God like that shouldn't be believed in. And, and you validate their rejection. And you endorse and say, you are, you are closer to God than those people who go to church every week holding to a construct like you just described. Is that not true? <laughs> it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And then you're going to see something. You're going to see them soften. You're going to see them. Their defenses are going to fall. You're going to see them. Wow. Why is it you would say that? I've never heard a Christian say that I could be closer to God rejecting this God concept than those who go to church every week holding to a concept like this. Why do you say that? They're intrigued. You have an opportunity now to tell them something they've never heard before. Yes. Don't you often find that the, the people who claim not to believe in God have a much more specific idea of what God is like than people who do? Uh, generally, much more specifically negative idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that's often the case. Or they've had something very painful happen to them they can't explain. Like, um, a, as a child, their parent was killed. And the preacher, uh, I have a patient, six, seven-year-old child, a mother killed in a car wreck. And at the funeral, the preacher looked the child in the eye and said, Jesus took your mommy to be with him. <laughs> She didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus anymore. I mean, she, when I saw her, and she was like 30 years old, she still had rage. And she looked at me and said, but I needed my mommy with me. Now, who could trust a God who takes mommies from their babies? We couldn't trust a God like that. And so, yes, I think things happen that get this distortion in our mind for lots of reasons. And we have to hopefully be able to approach people in a way that can can soften them up enough to hear a different perspective. Sometimes I can't talk about God directly. I talk about the principles of his character as revealed in nature. As it says in Romans 1.20, we can do. 
And when they see that and they see the evidences of what love looks like and how life is built upon this principle, and when you violate it, nothing but death and destruction comes, they soften and they say, wow, tell me more about that. So there's lots of ways to approach people. But I think you're right. Some people are so hardened, we can't come at them with, say, you know, with the Bible thumping, if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, you're going to die. They won't hear it. Yes? But how did you find out from the story that you heard about the angel writing down your faults? How did you overcome that concept? You studied and you found out differently. And I have found that in my whole family, um, I have sisters who totally distrust God and in the church, but they never read, they never study, they never pray. Um, when they, I mean, they don't study and pray at the same time, they just pray for God to do whatever they want Him to do. But, uh, we have to study ourselves. It's like when, when you said we don't have our children's outcome. That's true. I, I, get, I, I, father, I didn't have a father. I mean, he, wasn't, he was there, but he wasn't a father. That makes it very difficult for me to understand my relationship with God. Very difficult. When you have taken care of your father all of your life, it's very difficult to find a father to take care of you. And so, um, but... There's truth and much truth in what you're saying. My faith is only limited in my study and prayer. It's right. We limit our own, don't we? We limit our own experiences. It's true. It's not what I'm doing. It's what I'm not doing. And you talked about how your experience with your father changed or impacted your God concept, which made it hard for you to see him. And so we're still back to that, that confidence thing in a father when you have this other father figure idea still part of it, not just something you're doing. It's that perception of God. Just what somebody telling me, you yeah. to, to miss. I've Study it. When I get to Tuesday's lesson, because several people ask me to be sure and talk about what's in Tuesday's lesson today, and so I want to do that. First John five sixteen and seventeen. Somebody read that very loudly for us. I imagine most of you've read this sometime and go, "What does this mean?" If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that we should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Thoughts about that? Let's have a clear and concise explanation, please. No, seriously, have you ever read this before? Have you ever struggled on the meaning of it? Yes. So what are your thoughts? Let's bounce some ideas off each other. We're all here to learn. Any thoughts? What have you come to? Any wisdom? Questions? The expression venal sin. Venal sin versus mortal sin? Yeah, uh, he's talking about the Catholic differentiation between a venal sin and a mortal sin. And I'm not Catholic, so I don't think I fully understand the nuances of that. Yes? My thought is that when we ask God to work for people, we can have the kind of confidence knowing that God will do whatever He can do. He'll you know, turn the world upside down for every individual, but that there are some people who come to the place, like Lucifer did, where there's nothing more that can be done that would make any difference. And, and so therefore, God can't really answer that kind of, there's nothing He can do. Could this have anything to do with uh, Jesus uh, saying um, for us, Father, forgive them, 
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What do you think they thought they were doing? God's will in... They thought they were killing Christ, right? Or Jesus, the man named Jesus in their mind. But they thought they were killing him. Who were they actually killing? Themselves. They were killing themselves. They were destroying their own life. Isn't that true? They were cutting themselves off from the only opportunity for life. And they had no clue about it. They think they're killing me. They're, de- they're destroying themselves. Forgive them, Father. Other thoughts on what this might mean? Yes. What definition of death is James using? Is he using the sweet death or is he using the eternal death? I think it must be the eternal death because every good and bad person, other than those who are translated, um, the righteous as well as the wicked, go through the sleep death. Right. Okay. Isn't that true? Yes. Well, here, here's my paraphrase. You can like it. You can hate it. It's okay. I just kind of paraphrase. See what you think. It says, if anyone sees a fellow Christian who desires to be Christ-like, commit an act of sin, he should talk with God about him, knowing that God will completely heal him and give him life if he opens his heart and trusts to God. Such sin does not result in eternal death because it is merely a residual symptom of a heart in the process of being healed. However, there is no use in asking God to heal and give eternal life to the sinner who closes his heart to God and stubbornly refuses to allow God to heal him. Love cannot be forced, and God cannot force people to love and trust him, so there is no use in praying for God to force people to accept him. All violations of love are sin, but violations of love which occur in someone whose heart is open to God does not lead to eternal death. What do you all think? It says all violations of love are sin, but violations of love which occur in someone whose heart is open to God does not lead to eternal death. And how are we to know the difference? Yeah, I don't think we know the heart, do we? No. Yes. I don't think we always know when a heart will be opened, though, even though it may at this point be closed. We don't know if it will be closed throughout their whole life. So I still truly believe that intercessory prayer is very strong, asking the Holy Spirit to continue to work with that, that soul, even though they might not be ready right now. Could you say that a sin that cannot be forgiven is one that you don't want to be forgiven for? That opens up the whole discussion of what does it mean to forgive. Do you have a child and your child has uh, maybe offended you, cursed you, spit at you? I know some actual people in our church family here in Collegedale whose children have tried to kill them. Now, is the parent free in their heart to forgive that child? Even if the child still wants to kill the parent? Yes. So God is always going to forgive us. But that doesn't mean we always want reconciliation with Him. Yes. I wanted to ask, what role does prayer have in this if God is already wanting to work in their lives because He loves them anyway? What do you all think? Uh, what role does prayer have in this if God is already wanting to work in their life? It has to. And this is a great question. Boy, and we could spend an hour and a half talking about this. There's great examples from Scripture on this. But it has to do with how God runs His universe. God is love. Can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? No. Does God violate free will? No. No. So if someone says to God, God, leave me alone. If you say to God, God, leave me alone, will God grant you your wish? But how about if you have a mother says, God, I know my son says, leave leave him alone. But God, would you help him see you from a different angle they've never seen you before? So maybe they'll come to want to be with you. Will you still work with them? Bring influences into their life? God say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm I'm granting your wish. I'm not, I'm not harassing you, but, but your mother wants me to. To, to bring new information to you, you haven't considered before. Do you think this may be part of it? 
No, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason why is because it would be a violation of your freedom. Uh, if you have a any I have a friend, I won't tell you his name because some of you would know him, who dated a girl, and after about two and a half years of dating, he broke up with her. She didn't believe that that really is what should have happened. And so she followed him, called him, harassed him. Um, he was in the Air Force, deployed during Desert Storm to Saudi Arabia. I don't know if you've, you know, imagine what this is like, but it's in a tent and, and out in the middle of Saudi Arabia. You have an Army field telephone, and he's a, he is a, uh, a stationed out there, and the field phone rings, and he picks it up, and it's her back from the States. <laughs> now, you think what you have to be able to get through to get yourself as a civilian on a military phone across over in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this woman could manipulate, I'm telling you. Okay? <laughs> Do you think that type of treatment caused this, my friend, to love her more? If, if this woman had any chance of getting him to love her again, when he said, leave me alone, what did she need to do? Leave him alone. So there's part of that process going on as well. God can't force love upon us. It only will cause us to rebel further. Well, when people already tried at different angles to get you to come to him, and you're saying you can't force him, but yet isn't it like forcing when you're answering that mother's prayer or whoever it is that with them, saying, well, since she asked, I'll continue to harass you? Well, you know what? Do you see what I'm I absolutely see what you're saying. I absolutely see it. And uh, it's, it's an interesting question. There, and the aspect of intercessory prayer has multiple layers to it. When you pray for someone, does it impact you? Does it change your attitude for that person? Might you be blessed with some insight, some wisdom, that you now become the means whereby God reaches that person? So the intercessory prayer isn't necessarily that God is actually going to go and do something to that person, but your intercessions allow you to be empowered, enlightened, ennobled, uh, uh, some way that you become the means to reach that person. This is part of it as well. Also, if we had time, we don't have time, but in Daniel we actually have some very interesting processes that there are spiritual battles going on between angelic forces on planet Earth that when your prayers, when you pray, that uh, God sends his angels to do battle with evil angels that are influencing human minds. And you see that played out in, I think, Daniel chapter 10. If you want to read about that, you will see where Daniel prays and, uh, and Gabriel comes to do battle with the prince of, of Persia who is uh, influencing the king of Persia uh, in order to uh, neutralize the negative influences of this evil angel so that the, prince of, that the king of Persia can have the freedom to make the choice without being overly influenced by evil forces. Part of our intercessory prayer is, is for the purpose of neutralizing evil forces to give the loved one uh, the freedom to make a free choice and not be overly influenced by uh, evil forces and pressing them. Wednesday's lesson, bottom green section, says, How are you experiencing the reality of the great controversy in your own life? How can you make these promises of victory and protection your own? That is, what are you doing that might make it impossible for those promises to be realized in your life now? And I, I, I thought of so many of my patients. I have patients, and I, you've heard some of these before, but I have patients that come to me and they, and they say they pray every, every day that God, they've, they've got bad lungs, they're on oxygen at nighttime, they've got COPD, and they say, I just pray that God will help, my, help me breathe better. It's so hard to breathe. And I say, well, have you stopped smoking yet? <laughs> well, no. Can God answer that prayer? Can he, I mean, God, God has the power to give them new lungs, doesn't he? Will he? 
What would they do with those new lungs? Smoke them up. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Um, pray for healthy teeth every day but won't brush and floss. Yeah, that doesn't work so good. How about if you pray for good character but you lie, cheat, and steal? Do you know there are people that pray this kind of stuff? Um, pray for peace of heart but you gossip about people and spread rumors at church. Okay, now I've gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> you pray for God-likeness of mind, but you hold to God lies about God. In other words, you still believe some of these distortions about God, that God will rain fire down from heaven and torture the wicked in the end to make them pay for their evil deeds. But you want to be more like God. Hmm. And there's so many more. Uh, you pray for, sal for salvation, but you criticize the, the, the teenage girl who wears makeup. Or you want to be a faithful witness for God, but you ridicule a college student wearing jewelry. Uh, I'm going to read you from a statement from Colonel Gonan, a British officer who helped liberate the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp after World War II. This has to do with the idea of the makeup issue. This is his words. It was shortly after the British Red Cross arrived, though it may have had no connection, that a very large quantity of lipstick arrived. This was not at all what we wanted. We were screaming for hundreds and thousands of other things, and I don't know who asked for the lipstick. I wish so much that I, I could discover who did it. It was the action of genius, sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for these internees than the lipstick. Women lay in bed with no sheets and no nighty, but with scarlet red lips. <laughs> you saw them wandering about with nothing but a blanket over their shoulders, but with scarlet red lips. I saw a woman dead on the post-mortem table, and clutched in her hand was a piece of lipstick. At last, someone had done something to make them individuals again. They were someone, no longer merely the number tattooed on their arm. At last, they could take an interest in their appearance. That lipstick started to give them back their humanity. It's sort of like uh, the quote, if the bar needs painting, paint it. <laughs> <laughs> you like it, huh? <laughs> and for those who would like a, a little biblical base... For those wise words, you know in creation in Genesis 1, uh, when God brought chaos into order, the word there used to bring order is cosmos. Cosmos, cosmos, order out of chaos. Chaos, order, cosmos. We get the word cosmetic. From that it means to bring order. <laughs> When I use my comb in the morning to comb my hair after a night's rest, I'm bringing order to chaos. That's a cosmetic device. See, the question is not do you use cosmetics. The question is when you finished using them, have you brought order or added to the chaos? And then Thursday's lesson. Thursday's lesson. It says, having a true knowledge of the Godhead. It says, in uh, the first paragraph, again, John states that we know. We know him who is true. The Son of God, Jesus, has come into the world and has revealed to us God the Father. This knowledge is not merely head knowledge, but knowledge that leads to a close connection with God. 
How beautifully stated. How true. Are you comfortable with the idea that Jesus perfectly revealed the Father? Yes. Is there any character attribute that you believe the Father has that was not revealed in Jesus? Because if Jesus perfectly revealed the Father, can we use this life history of Jesus Christ as a differentiating tool to determine what doctrines are true and what doctrines are false about the Father? Looking at the life of Jesus. Wait a minute. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. Then, can you think of any ideas that are taught about God that we need to discard because they contradict what is revealed in Jesus? When the woman was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, what were Jesus' words to her? Neither do I condemn you. Do you see the Father perfectly revealed there? Yes. Do you hear the voice of God speaking? Or do you say, well, that was Jesus, the intercessor, who will plead to us to the Father who was waiting up there to punish us justly for our sins? Or do you, do you believe Jesus' words? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you know what says in Corinthians that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. Or that Hebrews chapter 1 says that Christ was the perfect or the exact expression of the Father. How about when Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him? He got down on his knees and washed his dirty feet. Do you see the Father kneeling before Jesus? Who was interceding between Judas and Jesus to keep Jesus from wrathfully acting out and hurting Judas, the betrayer? Do you see the Father kneeling there? Do we need someone to stand between us and the Father to protect us from the Father? Have you heard it taught that way? Do we need to discard some ideas we've been taught about God if we believe that Jesus was the perfect revelation of the Father? When Jesus forgave those who crucified him, who was he revealing? What will the Father do to those who betray him and remain his enemies? Forgive them. Forgive them and let them go. And when the life giver lets them go, what happens? And the wages of sin is? And the Bible is true. And God will cry. Ephraim, Ephraim, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? But you are bent on leaving me. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to take you as a hen takes her chicks under her wings. But you would not let me. And one day God will let go all those who don't want to be with him. And since he is the source of all life, what happens? They die. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such incredible lengths to reach us. When we were darkened, our minds were confused that we we didn't know you. The light shone in the darkness. We don't want to be the darkness who doesn't understand the light. We want our minds to be open to embrace the light of your character, your nature. Change us, Father. Send your spirit to enlighten us. Remove the distortions that keep us from knowing you and transform us, writing your perfect law of love in our hearts and minds that we can go out with skill and with wisdom to reach those family and friends in our, in our neighborhood that have lost confidence in you because of some lies that have been told about you so that we can share this good news about what an incredible, awesome God that you are and win them back to friendship with you as well. We pray in your holy name. Amen.